You're listening to the Stage and Story podcast, a show about story, culture, and the Christian imagination. I'm your host, Dane Bundy, president of Stage and Story and secondary principal at Providence Academy in Johnson City, Tennessee. Well, it's a great privilege to be here with you. This has been something that's been on my heart for a number of years, and I'll tell you the story uh, towards the end of of this dialogue. But it's something that is so, uh, God has impressed so deeply on my heart that I just couldn't escape it. So badly I wanted to bring people like you together so we could talk and imagine what God could do and remember what God has done. Today I'd like to talk to you about our theme, the image of God in the drama of God. I'd like to open with a passage from, I think probably my favorite play, Hamlet. This is in Act 5. The story is quickly coming to an end. Hamlet is not doing too well. Actually, neither are the other characters either. They're all basically dead. And... These are the last words, just about the last words of Hamlet, speaking to his friend, the only one who hadn't betrayed him. His name was Horatio, and this is what Hamlet said. O God, Horatio, what a wounded name. Things standing thus unknown shall live behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, And in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Haven't been around that many years, but I've learned this. People long to tell their story. Hamlet longed for his story to be told. Why do the human species long to tell their stories so deeply that we make movies and we have radio broadcasts and we have coffee sessions where we're just, let me just tell you my story. Why is that? I don't fully know, but I have a guess. Stories have the ability to capture who we are in ways that, well, by just our appearance, have no comparison. And it's not even that one story or many stories or a lifetime of stories could ever fully reveal who a person is because we as human beings are complicated. And that is one factor that makes us set apart from the rest of creation. Not only do we feel and think as human beings, but we choose, we act. Literature is built on people acting. The great works, or like I like to call them the classics, generally capture these human actions best. The great pieces of literature do many things simultaneously. They can present people who are princes or kings, beggars or thieves, students or salesmen, often very different from who we are, and put them into impossible situations And then by the end of the story, make us feel like we somehow know them. We may have nothing in common in them on the outside, but we identify with the questions they are asking 
or the fear they are experiencing or the pain they are battling. I am neither a prince nor from Denmark, and my uncle has never murdered my father, and I've never seen a ghost. Yet each time I read Hamlet, I feel as if I resonate with this Danish prince, that I am like him somehow. Because I too am human, and I too have experienced fear, betrayal, love, and maybe a little bit of an onset of madness. The great writers of history can make us feel this way because they observe the world and pass on to us a glimpse of what it means to be human. And the great thing is that God has gifted us with thousands of these brilliant observers who continue to help us understand what it means to be human. Now, I'm not saying that these writers these storytellers in any way, no matter how great they are, have really captured all that it means to be a human being. But what the great works of literature do is they leave us with questions. Great pieces of literature capture the mystery of the world that we live in. As a teacher, I find the presence of nagging questions in my discussions with my students as an indication that this work we are reading and discussing may very well be great. I I actually get a little frightened if my kids say, yeah, that was pretty good. I have no questions. I go, I don't think I picked a great work. You know, I've also learned that American Christians we're not terribly comfortable with mystery, especially in our understanding of the Christian faith. Now, granted, there is a balance here. God has made himself known. We see his hand in creation. We know what he's like through scripture, and we know him personally through his son. But we will never fully grasp grasp the complexities of the Godhead. There will always be mystery in God. Some of us naturally see the world as mysterious. We don't have to be taught or encouraged to think that way. And truthfully, artists generally tend this direction. Artists look out into the world in wonder and they think, I can imitate the world, but I can't fully understand it. As a young child, G.K. Chesterton had difficulty sympathizing with his modern understanding of science. This understanding that the world was governed by laws, laws that could fully be understood, and that if we applied ourselves, human reason enough, we could fully understand everything in this universe. No, Chesterton felt that the world had not unveiled its mysteries. And so instead of speaking of laws that work in the universe, he spoke of magic a literary figure that expresses a powerful force that is not fully explained. That's what I believe stands behind the magic in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia and J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and perhaps even Harry Potter. (laughs) This magic is not an attempt to commit witchcraft as forbidden in Leviticus, but a way of speaking of that which is beyond our senses, the supernatural. 
While at times throughout history, men and women have painted the world as a mechanical machine that is predictable and straightforward, G.K. Chesterton always felt, like I have felt, that life first is a story. Something that is full of twists and turns, joys and delight. And if there is a story, reasoned Chesterton, there must be a storyteller. Now, of course, we cannot prove these things with the scientific method. We uh, cannot even fully experience them. So we can't put them under a microscope or test tubes. These are supernatural realities and truths that are held by faith and imagination and yet in accordance with reason. Flannery O'Connor, celebrated American and Catholic fiction writer, explains in her very important work, Mystery and Manners, that, quote, the type of mind that can understand good fiction is not necessarily the educated mind, but it is at all times the kind of mind that is willing to have its sense of mystery deepened by contact with reality. And its sense of reality deepened by contact with mystery. So there's this cyclical process that goes on, if we are ready for it. This world that we can touch and smell can be like a doorway, a wardrobe, a railroad, a railway station, to the world that is beyond us. And time in the world beyond us doesn't diminish the world we live in. In fact, it enhances it. It clarifies it. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, highlights this reality in his last installment, The Last Battle. The great battle has taken place. Narnia is well-worn from the effects, and the children are dismayed. And Diggory calms the children by saying this, Listen, Peter. When Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is a dream. This idea of our world or being a shadow or a copy is not new to Lewis or even Christian thinkers. It's rooted in Judaism, specifically seen in the concept of the tabernacle. Whenever I think of this, it gives me the chills. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes to a Christian audience who at that time was being persecuted and tempted to return back to Judaism because Judaism wasn't being persecuted at the time. And the author warns these Christians that Christ is the fulfillment of Judaism. To return back is to return to a shadow when you have the real thing. Now, writes the author, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, 
since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now listen to this. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Narnia and Middle Earth and the tabernacle system are metaphors to help us understand our reality better. Sadly, there are views of the world that say this world is it. What you touch and feel is it. There is nothing beyond it. And like Chesterton, I could never accept that. Lewis and Tolkien and Sayers and probably you could not either. The vast and fearful and beautiful world always seemed to propel my imagination to what lies beyond it. Now, there are, ne- there are many reasons why I've never had difficulty believing in God and in the spiritual realm. And one of them is because, well, you heard it in the video. From a very early age, my family told me stories. Grandpa started it, passed it on to my dad, and I pray to pass it on to my children. Stories were told at, the, at bedtime or in the car, at the dinner table. Stories were some of the things that I loved the most. And it wasn't until seminary when I started asking more of a philosophical question. Why? I know we all love stories, but why do we love them so deeply? Why does it not matter the time period or the age or the race we gravitate towards stories? And I think Dorothy Sayers, in her work, Creator Chaos, offered one of the first clues for me that seemed to bring it all together. The Christian faith, she wrote, is the most exciting drama that has ever staggered the imagination of man. That drama is summarized quite quite clearly in the creeds of the church. She was arguing to a society that said, just give me the faith, but we don't need doctrine. We don't need the creeds. And she says that's cutting out the heart. Of Christianity. She says the plot pivots upon a single character, and the whole action is the answer to a central problem. What think ye of Christ? I love that. And pastors and teachers, they have their favorite metaphors to help people understand the world around them. Life is a war, life is a marathon. Ironically, none of those things really resonated with me. But this image did. That human history is God's drama centered on the lead actor, God's son. Now, of course, I wasn't the first one to think of this. Uh, I've been quoting you people who, have, who are in you know, heaven with our Lord right now, and they were thinking of this. But ironically, I've been involved in the performing arts for a long time, and either we don't take advantage of this metaphor and its implications, or we misuse it terribly. Here's an example of sometimes how they misuse it. This drama is about you. Write your own script. Find your center stage. I think there's great error there. Scripture reveals to us that human history is a sweeping, unified story of God first rescuing second, his creation. And even though I had sat in church since I, since I remember, not once did a pastor or a teacher explain to me how the Bible actually fit together. And I remember sitting in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and it clicked. 
and I thought, I will never read the Bible the same way again. This was the seed of stage and story, why we're here today. We, JT and I, have a passion to educate artists about God and his universe in images that already reside in the artist's imagination. Now I just can't help sharing with my students. I have some of them here. It doesn't really matter, right guys, whether I am in English class or Bible class or in theater, we make it known that God is our storyteller, our dramatist. That we are actually characters and performers in this cosmic drama. And understanding this drama and our role in it is what I'd like to call the Christian imagination. If you look at our shirts, our tagline is cultivating the Christian imagination. The foundation of the Christian imagination is understanding God's redemptive drama and our place in it. And so while God's drama doesn't begin with once upon a time, it opens in a similar way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you notice, God is the first person to use creativity, and therefore he's the author and authority on it. God didn't create because he was lonely or sad or bored, but it was out of the abundance of his eternal happiness that God unveiled the stage of his theater, the universe. And there were no flaws in his work. He was pleased and he was glorified. Yet, I don't really know why, but God wanted a stage with actors on it. So God created man to perform in his theater. Unlike the animals, man stood out from all creation because he was made in the image of God. Or in the Latin, the Amago Dei. But here we go. What is the image of God? Theologians and Christians have discussed this for centuries I'm going to turn to Dorothy Sayers, who's not necessarily known as a theologian. She was known more as a detective fiction writer. But when she dabbled in theology, she did it quite carefully and artfully. And this is what she said. What she actually does is she roots her argument in the context of Genesis. And she notes that when the text says man was made in the image of God... If we look back, we don't really know what that meant because we don't have a detailed description of God. So here's what she says. Looking at man, he, the author of Genesis, sees in him something essentially divine. But when we turn back to see what he says about the original upon the image of God was modeled, we only find the single assertion, God created. The characteristic, she concludes, common to God and man is apparently that the desire and ability to make things. So according to Sayers, what it means to be created in the image of God is that we have a longing and ability to create. And while I'm not quite ready to say that's all the image of God means, I'm intrigued by her answer. And Sayers is quick to differentiate between the way that God creates and man creates. God creates from nothing... Man creates, his image bearers create from what already exists. In a manner of speaking, we are rearrangers. Our creativity is imitation. 
And the idea of imitation is something that you can trace through the great Western thinkers. Homer, Plato, Aristotle, they talked about this idea of man imitating. And But I'd like to quote Lewis, who argues that imitation is distinctly a Christian concept. In his essay, Christianity and Literature, Lewis argues that, quote, in the New Testament, the art of life itself is an art of imitation. Can we, believing this, believe that literature, which must derive from real life, is to aim at being creative, original, and spontaneous? Originality in the New Testament, I love this, is quite plainly the prerogative of God alone. Even within the triune being of God, it seems to be confined to the Father. So our work as image bearers is creative imitation. And as Eric Little in the movie Chariots of Fire said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure, I think when we create, God smiles. So here's the story. In the garden, God granted his image bearers the creative task of ruling the land, equipping them with the imagination to envision and build beautiful and magnificent things. As God walked with them in the garden like a wise director alongside his actors, they knew, Adam and Eve knew, the stage and story and glory was all his. Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis, writes, After the world had been created, man was placed in it as in a theater, that he, beholding above him and beneath the wonderful works of God, might reverently adore their author. Man, designed as supporting actors, they were neither jealous nor resentful, but joyful as they danced in God's theater to his warm pleasure. But as so many stories go, something terrible and unexpected happened. From stage left, the wicked antagonist slithered out. This was the same character who many years ago had grown jealous and resentful of God's priority on stage. Cast out of the heavens for rebellion, Satan was determined to hurt God by destroying his theater and poisoning his actors. I have a different story, whispered Satan to Adam and Eve. Who says God must get all of the glory from his theater, steal the spotlight, occupy center stage? God is hiding something from you. You are brilliant. I've watched you sing, act, and dance, weave stories for the animals, cultivate gardens, and I think you belong on the stage telling your story, writing your own script. Well, you know the narrative. Adam and Eve believed this false counter story, digested the poison, and ended up affecting all actors who'd ever enter onto the stage after them. So that now every actor who enters the stage with the image of their director, it is now marred and cloudy. And these image bearers are determined to use all of their creative abilities to make the cosmic drama about themselves. Deep down they knew the truth. This is Romans 1. This was someone else's stage and story. Someone, someone else's glory. And deep down, whether they believed it, whether they made it vocal or not, they ached 
to be reunited with their author, director, maker. But it was much too humiliating to return, so they suppressed this desire, ignoring God. The moment Adam and Eve bit into Satan's lie, they experienced something they had never felt before. They were naked and alone. Even though God called to them, they could not dance like they used to. The shame was overwhelming. Their author-director inspiration felt painfully absent. As the story progressed, one might think that maybe time would heal the wound, but the reality of the author's absence continued into one scene after another to bleed in a manner that all the supporting actors for generations and generations to come would experience this pain. Frederick Buechner, in his brilliant work, Telling the Truth, describes this continual bleeding as the real absence as opposed to the real presence, as some traditions talk about in, the, in communion. Buechner explains the prophets and the Psalms, they all speak of the one who is not there when he is most needed, not to mention Noah and Abraham, Gideon, Barak, Samson and David, and the rest of them who, if they did not speak of their anguish, carried it around in their hearts and grew whiskers and wore robes and armor and ephods and stovepipe hats to help conceal it, even from themselves, because as the author of Hebrew strips them and all of us bare by putting it, they all died without having received what was promised. Friends, God has written a tragedy, and it's no use ignoring it like some people do. Something has gone terribly wrong in this drama, this stage in this story, and we cannot fix it ourselves. Man needed something unexpected and gracious to happen to him. Otherwise, the story would conclude in misery. But it didn't. The plot turned as God made a promise. A promise that God made after Adam and Eve listened to Satan, but right before God banished them from the garden. And if you're not careful, you'll miss it takes place in Genesis 3.15, right smack in the middle of God's just sentence on his characters. The author writes, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In literary terms, this is foreshadowing. One day, not in this scene or even in this act, God was sending a hero he would be an offspring of Adam and would rise up and crush the antagonist. After his characters rebelled against him, the author had every right to start over, crumple his paper, and begin again. But he didn't. He recommitted himself to his rebellious creation in an unthinkable way. God, the dramatist director, enters into his own story as an actor on his own stage not to revenge, but to rescue. And not any type of rescue, a rescue that would require him to allow these traitorous characters to humiliate, violate, and eventually murder him. No one can say that our dramatist director doesn't know what it's like to be a character in this story, a performer in this drama. He felt the limitation and experienced the pain of the real absence that lives in all the hearts of his image bearers. So step back with me. 
This is hard to believe, isn't it? Ridiculous. Why would God become a character in his story? That's as silly as saying that a woman who's 90 will have a child or a 12-year-old who's a virgin will get pregnant. It's unbelievable, unexpected. It's comic in the sense that it's totally and completely unforeseeable. And I don't think any part of God's creation, the animals or the angels, had any idea that God would do this. And so what this means is that God's drama is tragedy and comedy. And But the story's not over. A few scenes after Adam and Eve fled the garden, God selected a man named Abraham and reiterated, expanded the promise he made in the garden. God would send a hero, and the hero would lead man back into the garden and enjoy great blessings. Abraham passed this word on, his, on to his descendants, and God raised up men like him, such as Jacob and David. And the more, that, more scenes that passed, the clearer God's secret rescue plan became. And it's not to say that the characters always found this easy to believe or easy to wait for. Time continued. Scenes came to a close and they waited and they waited for this promised hero. And finally, when the characters thought this act could not get any bleaker, God wrote himself into the drama. We call this the incarnation. And the hero's name is Jesus. To God, this hero wasn't a surprise or a new creation. He was present when the theater was created. Paul tells us in Colossians that all things were created through him and for him. This hero has always existed. But the characters had never seen him like this. And they had trouble believing it was God in character form. Most of the characters found it too hard to believe. The dramatist director has become an actor? What, do you expect us to think like children? Yes, the hero said, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Our hero defied any expectations. As he walked this stage, he loved and healed the characters who most thought were unlovable and spoke with great confidence about his father's drama and how he was the climax of it. The hero called to the characters to wake up and turn from their blindness. Understand the true reality of this theater. Many did, surrendering any claim they felt to their place at the center of the stage. If they followed him, they would suffer ridicule and rejection from other unbelieving characters. But they would be reunited with their dramatist director. And the pain of his absence would one day leave. And they would live in everlasting joy. For some, this is hard to accept. This sounds a lot like a fairy tale, something we just made up to fix our problems. I think not. I believe it's something deeply implanted in our heart. Fairy tales are deeply implanted in our hearts. As Beekner says again, but if the world of fairy tale and our glimpses of it here and there are only a dream, they are one of the most haunting and powerful dreams that the world has ever dreamed. So while the hero walked the stage, many committed their lives to following him, and the hero mentored them. Just as God had promised in the garden, the rescue plan was unfolding. 
Now all they waited for was the hero to crush the antagonist. But once again, the plot turned and many of God's characters rallied in their jealous rage and nailed the hero to God's own set, the cross. How can this be, many of the characters thought. The hero was supposed to crush, not be crushed. The hero was supposed to bring them back to the garden. The hero has failed. The dramatist director has failed. So maybe this isn't a fairy tale after all. Just tragedy. Blackout. Not really, but you know what I mean. And then rumbling in blinding light, and a new scene opens. The hero was alive. The serpent had crushed his heel, but the hero had bruised his head. This had been the dramatist director's glorious plan the whole time to unravel the lead actor. This tragic comedy indeed is a fairy tale. Before the hero left the stage, he promised he would always be with them as he would send the director of their drama to empower them. And as he parted, the hero told them, go and make disciples. Teach them to perform as they were created to. And they did. These supporting actors rallied together, all at great sacrifice, and shared the good news about the cosmic drama. The author has not abandoned us. He has made a way for us to return to the garden once again. Friends, the final act is still underway. And we are supporting actors with this same calling. The calling to make disciples of or mentor God's characters. And it's at the heart of why stage and story exists and why we're here today. About four years ago, my father introduced me to a man with a similar love for storytelling, J.T. Wynn. I was still living in Tennessee at the time, but whenever I'd come back and visit California make a point to get coffee at Panera with him. The time rushed by as we discussed the power of storytelling and our love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A couple of years passed, and I had the idea of gathering together a small number of Christians who recognized the power of stories and shared the same love for God's drama and the hero. We met in my parents' backyard. There were about 12 of us, and many of you are here today. We didn't have an agenda. We just talked about plays and movies and writing and performing. And as that night closed, I thought, I want to do this again. I want to be encouraged by these people again. I need to find a way to bring them together again. November 2015, two years ago this month, my wife and I felt an undeniably strong call to return to California to be with our family. At that time, we were running a theater program, writing plays, Panera Bread, hosting drama camps, and mentoring young artists. So returning to California was an unexpected turn that we felt we needed to make. November 2016, one year ago this month, I sat down with a man named Wayne Scott at Panera Bread. and shared with him how I felt God was moving me to focus on mentoring people through the arts. I presented to him in paper form a number of crazy wild dreams and ideas, but the least crazy wild idea was that I wanted him to mentor me so that I could turn around and better mentor others. 
He said no. No, I'm joking. <laughs> that same month, November 2016, during Thanksgiving break, I was reflecting on my work in the performing arts, my love for writing and storytelling and staging plays. An idea just popped into my head, as they usually do. I opened my journal, jotted down some thoughts, drew a few pictures, and I texted J.T. Wynn. We met at a cafe, not Panera. He told me he doesn't like it. <laughs> and that day, I shared these ideas of a ministry called Stage and Story. I know a lot of godly men and women in the arts, JT. Some are professionals, educators, students. What if we were to find a way to make it easier for them to connect and encourage one another? What if we held conferences, workshops, and camps? And we could design a website that could be a hub of sort so we could share our resources, such as some of the plays we've written or the lessons we've learned. We could also find the best articles, books, podcasts, videos available today on Christianity and the performing arts and make them available in one central place. Then we could pray really hard that Christian men and women who love the arts would use these tools not to shove themselves in the spotlight on stage, but to turn around and mentor younger artists and how to understand the great redemptive drama and their place in it. These mentors could teach them how to better perform in God's theater, helping them keep their eyes focused on the lead actor, Jesus Christ. I finished at a breath. JT looked at me and said, let's do it. Stage and story exists so that more people can develop Christian imagination. Not necessarily so that we can create more religious drama, but that as Christians, we can view the arts from the Christian imagination. This imagination it needs to be informed and passionate about God, his drama, his rescue plan, and most of all, his hero. And so our audience is you. It's such an honor to have you here with us today as we kick off our ministry, something that we feel God has led us to, something that burns deeply within my heart that I feel like if I were not to pursue would be disobedience. Our audience is you, godly men and women somehow involved in the arts. Our goal is to provide you with tools and opportunities to mentor or be mentored so that you can excel in your creativity and better focus on imitating and magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ in his stage and his story. Well, this closes our time for the Stage and Story podcast. I'm Dane Bundy, your host. Thank you so much for listening today and just want to encourage you to check out our website, stageandstory.org, for more resources on cultivating the Christian imagination. Now, may Christ be the center of all our thinking and imagining. See you next time.